narrative is funded by viewers like you. Support our independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Narrative Live. If timing is everything, then Craig Unger's new book could not have come at a more salient time. As a new president, Joe Biden, grapples with the wreckage left behind by the previous president, the former president just won't go away. Because of Trump, we are wrestling with a potential fascist insurgency, a failed coup, and a Republican Party terrified of what Trump's second impeachment trial did meant to reveal about them and their rank and file. So it's time to put one thing to rest about Donald Trump, shall we? Let's put to rest the question of whether he is, in fact, a Russian asset. And Craig Unger does it brilliantly in American Compromat, his new book, where he provides the most detailed answer yet to the question, is Trump a Russian asset? And Craig is here. Hi, Craig. How are you? Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's, I, I'm fine. Thank you. And thank you for having me. It's exciting. Your book is really a good read. I'm going to wait to ask you the question um, of whether he is a Russian asset for just a few seconds. But you, you're, you know, most people know you for your very detailed research and your incredible writing. Um, but, you know, and you always really do have the receipts when you're bringing claims about everything. But I've never seen an author actually bring something even better than receipts. And tonight you brought something even better than receipts. You brought one of your sources along with you. Um, and this is uh, major or former major Yuri Schwetz of the KGB, who's was of the KGB not of the KGB right now, uh, who's one of your key sources. Uh, and uh, welcome, Yuri. It's nice to have you on the show. Uh, you were the, the Washington, uh, you worked at least the Residentia, right? Is that what it was called in Washington for the KGB? Uh, yes, uh, it was called Russian Residentura or KGB station in Washington, D.C. That's quite a, it's quite a job, and it's certainly one where you could help answer this question of, of whether uh, Trump is a Russian asset or not. And uh, LB, how are you? I'm good. Let's start with uh, Craig and talk about this book. Tell us what the three most important things are that uh, people should expect to learn from your book. Well, I, I think the biggest thing really is about Trump being a Russian asset. And, uh, you know, I think we've all heard hundreds of broadcasters saying, what does Russia have on Trump? Why is he bat uh, kowtowing to everything uh, Putin wants? And we've seen that the top intelligence officers in the nation, at least the pre-Trump ones, uh, Republican and Democrat allied from Dan Coats to uh, John Brennan, have all said, uh, Trump is a Russian asset, but no one ever goes further and explains what that means. And I wanted to do that and go back to the beginning. And uh, more than a year ago, I got in, I, I met Yuri, and he was enormously helpful in that regard. Uh, so I was able to do that. Um, the book also looks at the idea of compromise as as a theme going through this entire Trump. Russia era. And of course, compromise means compromising materials. And I believe the Russians have plenty on Donald Trump. Uh, and I also started to see the Epstein operation, the Jeffrey Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell operation, which has been characterized as sex trafficking a lot. Um, and it is horrible sex trafficking, but it was also a compromise factory in which it captured uh, the uh, dirty little secrets of the richest and most powerful uh, pe people in the world, men, really. Yeah. And finally, I, I, I write about uh, William Barr, who has bowed gracefully 
bowed out of the picture just as I finished my book. Uh, he was still in power when I finished it. Uh, but you see the rise of uh, a right-wing authoritarian ideology in the court system. And uh, I, I go into Opus Dei a bit, and uh, which is a, a, a right-wing authoritarian a Catholic prelature that had roots in uh, Spanish fascism. And you see its rise in the American court system, which I think is uh, very, very disturbing. It's really fascinating watching you track Trump and then Epstein and uh, and uh, Opus Dei and Barr. It's a really great uh, read for those of us who are really interested in how those forces converge. Um, Yuri, you, you worked with Bob Levinson uh, for a period of time. And, and of course, the, his death remains, uh, um, you know, a, a, a real tragedy for everyone who thinks about those years where the CIA and others try to uh, impact change on, on this on the Soviet Union. Um, tell me a little bit more about what you worked with him on. And uh, I'd also like to hear about how you feel about what's going on with Putin today. Uh, actually, I uh, met uh, Bob Levinson in about 1998, just when he retired from uh, uh, many years of his uh, work with the FBI, and uh, he brought me into this private business security investigation business, and uh, we were doing um, investigations for British and American corporation, hedge funds, banks Oops. in the former Soviet Union. Most mm -hmm. of them were due diligence. Right. Uh, we'll work to get Craig back on here. Fascinating experience. But uh, it it lasted until his unfortunate disappearance, kidnapping, actually in 2008. Uh, and then uh, I continued this business. On, you on my you also went to school with Putin. And as part, um, yes, I was not in the same class. We were at the same school and as the Russian intelligence uh, agency modern current Russian intelligence agency announced several years ago, we were at, uh, at the same year with him. Uh, but, uh, you know, he was a remarkable guy at the time to the extent that uh, I, I don't actually remember him. I have very vague <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> remembrance yeah. of this guy because, uh, uh, you know, he, he had a couple of nicknames at the time which can explain who he was oh. at the time. What was, what was um, that? What were the nicknames? One of them was the nicknames? Uh, Blair, uh, uh, Pale Moth, one of them, and Cigarette Butt. <laughs> but, you know, Cigarette Butt, it does not reflect the Russian word because Russian word is called Akurak. This is the remaining part of the cigarette, which is left over when you finish cigarette. And this... Wish. Uh, nasty piece of <laughs> remaining cigarette, which is just throw away. Right. So, uh. It was Akurak. This is how the people who knew him treated him at the time. It's uh, appropriate for what's happening to him yeah. right now, as he seems to be on his last legs there. Uh, it looks like, yes, this is the final show, curtains, and uh, um, it will be devastating for him. He is losing it. Uh, I have a feeling that he does not control his security agencies anymore, which he has been building for 20 years, which were the foundation of his reign in Russia. Now they're against him, and they're trying to remove him from power as soon as possible. 
so this is a Shakespearean story right now. It's a tragedy, really. When you think about who might be taking over, do you think it's going to be Navalny, or do you think there's a possibility even that Navalny could be the, uh, you know, the the next leader of that country? Or are we really talking about another iteration of uh, of the KGB, you know, FSB continuum of of those kinds of intelligence leaders? Uh, I have a very gloomy feeling about the Russian uh, uh, future. I believe that Putin will be succeeded by people who might be much worse than his. Mm. The top leadership of the FSB, led by Nikolai Patrushev, who is the chairman of National Security Council these days. And these people, they're actual terrorists. These are the people who blew up multi-apartment buildings in Russia in 1999 to bring put into power. These are the people who poisoned Alexander Litvinenko with polonium in London. These are the people who a couple of years ago poisoned Skripal in Great Britain. And I believe these are the people, it's not Putin, but these are exactly this team uh, who poisoned Navalny, Navalny just recently. Mm, it's terrible. Um, that we'll be watching that very carefully. Craig, are you, are you able to hear us again? Uh, picture yes, is a bit I am. Fuzzy. Okay, great. I'm glad uh, you're back on. I can hear you. <laughs> okay. It picture's a little fuzzy, but we'll get through this, I we think. We can hear you well. Yeah. Yeah, he's got some gremlins. <laughs> Not me, unexpected. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you that question then that you yeah. answer so well in the book. Is, is, is Trump a Russian asset? Absolutely. And I, I, I think in, in the book, I tried to go back to the beginning. And while we weren't able to answer every question, I started around 1980 after interviewing, I started interviewing uh, Yuri. And the first events uh, took place just after Trump did his uh, first very successful, uh, that was actually genuinely successful uh development, the development of what is now the uh, Grand Hyatt, uh, Hyatt Grand Hotel, just next to Grand Central Station. And like all hotels, it needed television sets. And where did Donald Trump for, shop for his TV sets? Well, he ended up shopping from a, uh, a company downtown, a, a Soviet a so electronic store run by uh, some Russian immigrants. And these were people I, met, I, I wrote about in uh, uh, House of Trump, House of Putin a bit. And I even referred to this transaction, but I didn't really know what it meant. And after interviewing Yuri, uh, I realized one of the co-owners uh, was uh, 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 working for the KGB. And like nice. many uh, Jewish immigrants from the former Soviet Union, he had made a deal with the KGB that they will let him out of the country, but he had to report to them once he got here. And he was known as a, a spotter agent. And I may uh, defer to you, Yuri after this, but that, that meant he was looking for potential recruits who could uh, potentially be recruited by the KGB. And when he sold 200 TV sets to Donald Trump, presumably at a low, low price, uh, that effectively opened the doors of the KGB uh, to Donald Trump. And that was at least the beginning of a major part of their relationship. So you're and talking about Sam Kessler here, right? Is that, is that right? We are, we are. Yeah. And uh, yes. uh, Yuri can, can tell you a little Yuri more about him. Right? What? Can you say the year again? The year? 
again? Uh, well, not 1980 was when the hotel o- opened. 1980. So Donald Trump was uh, buying a 200 uh, TVs from a guy who, who owned one of these Russian electronic stores and in the Flatiron. Um, that that really is how it all started. It well, it, it's certainly part of it. I mean, this sort of opened a door, and there was a lot of uh, people forget about the Cold War. There were a lot of uh, Soviet spies around, and there were many, many at the United Nations. Uh, there was, uh, I mean, Yuri can tell you. Uh, you know, one thing, you know, I, I grew up, uh, I'm old enough that one of the, my, my favorite, one of my favorite movies growing up was Manchurian Candidate, which of course was this dark conspiratorial paranoid uh, thriller about uh, communists taking over the United States government. Well, this was not a grand, elaborate conspiracy like that. And Yuri can tell you better than I, but uh, the Russians were approaching uh, dozens and dozens of Americans, uh, among them uh, influential business people. And what we begin to see is a series of uh, interrelated events going over 40 years or so, in which Donald Trump is gradually reeled in, and uh, even though there's a lot of bumbling along the way, uh, they hit the jackpot bigger than anyone could possibly have imagined. Tell us more, Yuri, about uh, about Kislin and how that all worked out with with uh, the Joy Ludd Club. Well, um, I work at the time when uh, this uh, Joy, Joy Ludd Electronics was operational in New York. I was in Washington, so it was like developing uh, uh, before my eyes. It was a tricky story in a sense that it was the only store in America which was selling TV sets that could operate both in the United States and in Russia, because in Russia they have European pulse oh. system in the United States and TSC. And every Soviet working in the United States at the time Every Soviet high-level official going all the way to the ministers, it was a kind of duty to go into the store and to buy this TV set, bring it to Moscow. <laughs> and KGB was very concerned about this because the KGB knew electronic stores to be used by the FBI to try to recruit the Soviets. Actually, we had uh, an accident in our Washington residency when an officer of our station exchanged a crate of Russian vodka bought at the embassy for uh, electronic equipment in a local GC electronic store. Yeah. And FBI, it was illegal because vodka was uh, sold only to the Soviet employees. It was tax-free, you know. Right. And using it as an instrument of pay- payment was uh, illegal. The FBI approached the guy and recruited him. Mm. Then he was exposed by Aldrich Ames. When Aldrich Ames started working on the KGB, the guy was executed. So oh, for KGB, wow. it was a nightmare that FBI can use electronic store in New York to reach out, try to recruit Soviets, or to install a bug into this TV right. set. A minister yeah. or a Kremlin official brings yeah. it home and they're sitting and listening. That's exactly what the KGB was doing at the U.S. Embassy. Yeah. I remember right. a situation when Soviet right. school children, like American scouts, they presented uh, from their heart to the U.S. Ambassador at the time an emblem of Bald Eagle with a listening device built in inside oh. it. And this Bald Eagle was put on the wall behind the Ambassador, 
and the KGB was sitting and for months listening what's going on there. So it was the worst nightmare for the KGB and the way out was to recruit, to put this electronic store under control. It was not difficult because the owner of the store was well known to the KGB. If you remember, it was early 70s. It was Jackson Benick Amendment right. passed by the U.S. Congress, which conditioned granting status of uh, most favorable nation to the Soviet Union if they allow immigration. Right. It was more, mostly immigration of Jewish people out of the Soviet Union. The KGB used this opportunity. I have an absolutely reliable source in who operated at the time in Odessa. They set a special squad for this purpose. Everybody who wanted to immigrate was approached by the KGB with a blackmail. Mm. Either you signed a handwritten note pledging to cooperate with the KGB, or you don't go anywhere. And I was told that about 90% of people who were approached signed the paper just to get out of the country. So this Most is really important. Can we just underline that a little bit here? So yes. all these... Uh, the, the Jews that were immigrating, or most of these Jews that were immigrating from the Soviet Union, were forced to uh, sign this agreement to the KGB uh, to cooperate. Um, right. And that was part of the exactly. agreement which allowed the Soviet Union to have free trade or to have trade with the United States, which was the Jackson Benick, I, I forgot the name wrong, amendment. So um, that's a significant thing. It probably explains why there are so many Jews in the in the Russian mafia and probably so many, um, you know, such tight connections between the Russian mafia and, and the intelligence services. Yeah, exactly. So I was told that this particular guy, he signed the paper. But again, most of those Jews who signed the paper would immigrate and forget about it. But there were a small number of those who would leave this hell, the Soviet Union. And three days later, having landed in the United States, they would get back to the Soviet embassy and suddenly they start loving the, the Russian government again, you know, <laughs> trying mm. to do business. So those who, upon immigration, started developing relations with the Soviet government, it was a red flag, first sign that something is fishy with these guys. And these guys, they opened this electronic store and the KGB had to be sure that they're reliable that they're not double agents, that they're not reporting to their bear. For this, they had to deliver, deliver information. And the information they could have at this time was the so-called spotter information. They were looking for their connections among Americans and report to the KGB, like, we believe this guy can be interested to you. This guy, he may have interesting information, etc., etc. This is how the connected Donald Trump, and this is how they reported to the KGB New York station about Donald Trump. And these people, they were used for several years to gather as much information on him as possible. Later, it was analyzed, and the station came to the conclusion that it's time to put him in contact with the field, local field officer. And this is what happened. I want that to be landed. Okay, so... Yuri, would you mind, please, saying that again, that last part? So the, it came back to the KGB from the electronic store that it, that this guy, and they had been watching him, and they had been tracking him, and there was a decision made, this is a guy, now we're going to go sort of full court press and con and convert him into a, a, an, a willing asset? Is that what you're saying? 
from the KGB uh, side? More or less, yes. There are, there are different stages of so-called cultivation or development. First, you establish a okay. contact. Then you spend time gathering as much information as you can through usually other agents. Then you put together this information in one single file. You sit down and you analyze it to see what are the prospects of this particular target. And then you make a decision. And the decision, I believe, was made by uh, at least 83, that it's time to establish a direct contact with Donald Trump from somebody from Russian New York residentura. This time to uh, speed up and deepen cultivation of the target. If I, I may interject yeah. sure. a, a bit here. At one point, yeah. I, I asked Yuri uh, what Trump was like, like as a target for recruitment. And uh, I, I think he can tell you his answer that it was uh, he was just the ideal target. He, he uh, why, why don't you go and explain, well, yeah. Yuri? Yes. He yeah, was born, he was born to be recruited. Women. I mean, everything in this guy, yeah. everything is... Oh out of place, out of proportion, everything is uh, exaggerated, you know? It's like a co uh, combination of extremes, you know? Extreme vanity, extremely low IQ, extreme narcissism, and uh, extreme uh, um, ego and love to flattery, yeah, flattery and, and obviously and greed and greed. Mm -hmm. You have it all there. So you easy to get. Yeah, and, and one of the Why obvious things is the idea of putting a Trump Tower, a monument to capitalism in Red Square in the middle of the Cold War when we were at each other's throats is just obscenely ridiculous. But Donald Trump is vain enough. He's narcissistic enough not even to consider that. Hmm. And so who'd made that first contact in 1983 to take it to the next level? Was it, who was the actual person? Well, actually, now we know with, with established with Craig that uh, one person we know was the daughter of them uh, ambassador. First, he was the, uh, uh, the head of the Soviet mission at the United Nations, Yuri Dubinin. And several months later, he became the Soviet ambassador to Washington, D.C. Uh, I strongly believe that she was Russian intelligence officer. And it was a time, it was really a hard time because uh, in 86, the FBI uncovered a huge KGB spy network in the United States, which had been operational for 17 years oh. and did incredible damage to national security. This is Walker's family spy ring. In response, the U.S. government kicked out at least 95% of officers from Washington Station, New York Station, San Francisco Station. So there were a few people left. At that time, the station tasked this lady, Natalia Dubinina, to get in touch with Donald Trump. And it was she who arranged his first trip. He, well, basically, I would say this, the KGB used her to bring Donald Trump to Moscow on this uh, summer 87 trip. This is uh, them arriving right, in, right. Uh, in Red Square. It was a different. Mm -hmm. 
Go ahead. I believe it was a different officer who was meeting Donald Trump on more or less regular basis under the modus operandi. This field officer was supposed to meet uh, Trump for about once a month. Once mm -hmm. a once a month. And and do we know who that is? Once a month. Um, I can assume, presume that uh, it was Yuri Antipov, acting uh, station chief, but I'm not sure. Or Natalia Dubinina was in her first marriage at the mm -hmm. time, and her, as far as I understand, her husband was uh, Alexander Yakovenko, who until recently was the Russian ambassador to London. The British journalists were looking around for years trying to connect him with the KGB successor because under him, uh, the, KG, the penetration of the KGB successor to Great Britain has been unprecedented. Hmm. He was there, the ambassador, when Litvinenko was poisoned, when Skripals were poisoned, when the Russians helped to arrange this Brexit, etc. So. Hmm. I, as far as I understand, he was her husband, and until he left uh, New York, he was connected to this uh, to Trump uh, cultivation operation as well. So we're talking between 1983 until recently. You'd imagine um, he has had contact with uh, with assets uh, with agents of of either KGB or the FSB since 1983. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly. This is you, 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 uh, It's very important to make a point that the significance that KGB was the first Soviet Russian organization which established contact with Donald Trump is very significant because it means that all subsequent contacts between Donald Trump and Russians or Soviets and then Russians have been under the KGB or FSB, SVR control. This is the modus operandi. No matter whether this is some greasy businessman or some lady who, who said that I'm a Russian lawyer, all those meetings could have taken place only with KGB, FSB, SVR, allowing this to happen. And his election, now, would that be the same for his election? Order. Would the election have only been able to ha yes, happen yes. with the FSB this approval? Is, yes, this is again, Wow. Uh, yes, exactly, exactly. It was their operation, Kremlin's operation. Well, but they have a little bit different modus operandi compared to what we had uh, in the Soviet Union. Now they're doing as a collective farm. Now the number one priority of any Russian intelligence or any Russian government big operation is to make as much money as possible. Mm. Because <laughs> the agency put up a lot Laundry of money, millions, millions of dollars. To, to make as much money as possible and also to move it into no, no, our no, 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 no. The way they, they run operation, oh. intelligence operations these uh, days, this Russian intelligence community would establish a group and it would collect millions of dollars of operational money to achieve the objective. And then Everybody involved wants to get some money from this pipe, pipe, you know, and everybody starts bringing his people into it. And instead, it breaks the essence of intelligence operation because number one requirement of any intelligence operation is confidentiality or mm -hmm. secrecy. 
But when they bring dozens, if not hundreds of people, because everybody wants to get money of it, and it becomes like a, a collective corporation. And that's exactly what ruined this Russian meddling into 2016 presidential campaign. What they were doing, it was, uh, it, it was just sloppy, unprofessional, insane. And this is why they actually exposed Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe the cigarette butt guy that was mediocre is not so great at what he's doing, (laughs) Mr. Putin. Well, right. Maybe he's exactly. By the way, this mediocre guy, he never never worked in intelligence. Um, Craig, why don't you uh, pick pick it up here a little bit and just contextualize what what Yuri's saying. Absolutely. I think it's worth pointing out that what Yuri is saying is very different from the official story that's out there. And just after Trump was elected uh, in 2016, in fact, I think it was nine hours and 30 minutes after he was elected, uh, a story uh, appeared in the Moscow Daily uh, MK. I'm sorry, my, I don't speak Russian, so I'm going to mispronounce everything. But uh, it, it was an interview with Natalia Dubinina. And uh, she uh, gave a completely different story about how uh, uh, how Trump was being cultivated. And she said her father was really the guy behind it. And he he wooed and charmed uh, Trump and he spoke fluent English and Trump was dazzled with him. And he he told it was mutual flattery. Uh, He told Trump how uh, he was just blown away by the by Trump Towers and he wanted one in Moscow. And as Yuri pointed out to me, and it's obvious if you search old newspapers, that story is a complete lie. Uh, if, if, if for what, and one of the many reasons we know that it's a lie is simply that Ambassador Dubinin did not speak English. He could not have charmed Trump like that. <laughs> and that was widely published because it was very unusual uh, for the Soviet Union to appoint ambassadors to the UN and the United States who didn't even speak English. So it was and, the daughter was who a, did speak English, and he would have been more more interested in the daughter, presumably. Uh, an attractive young woman or an old, what, what's he known as? Molotov with a pompadour, I think uh, <laughs> uh, Dubinin was known. He was very vain, supposedly. And and so the 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 whole thing that started in 1980, you say 1980, but probably only officially started building up one-on-one contact in 1983. What were they doing all that time with Donald Trump? I mean, were they just grooming him? Were they teaching him the ways of uh, of of you know how to become a fascist leader? What what kind of training? What was he undergoing at the time between between the 83 and onwards? Well, one of the really interesting things that takes place during this period, and you have to remember Trump uh, was, uh, I guess he was in his early 40s. Around 87, he became friends with uh, Jeffrey Epstein, and he was really very much a playboy. Uh, he had the, the persona of hitting all the clubs. He went through his wives rather quickly. Um, and suddenly, but suddenly during that period, starting around 1984, he starts promoting himself as a foreign policy genius, as a man who's mastered uh, nuclear arms and knows more about it. After all, his uncle was at MIT. Uh, and the truth is, he didn't know anything about it. But as Yuri told me, nothing could have provider, provided a bigger opening for the KGB then to boost his ego along those lines. So this is what was happening in the lead up 
uh, to his first trip to Moscow, which took place in 1987. And uh, as, as Yuri will tell you, uh, that trip largely was, uh, it had to be approved and initiated, in fact, by the KGB. Is that the case, Yuri? Yes, it was Natalia Dubirina, the officer of New York Station, who arranged port. She was used by the KGB headquarters in Moscow to invite Trump to come to Moscow. The entire trip was arranged through the KGB, by the KGB, and on the KGB's money, because official host of this trip was Russian interest, which was a front for the KGB. This was a big coup, obviously, uh, the at the time. Of this trip was... Uh, yes, yes, again, because the, as I explained, the Russian agents network in the United States had been almost completely wiped out by these expulsions, etc. So we had to start from ground zero almost. Mm. And in this situation, uh, Arnold Hammer, who had been the Kremlin's agents for decades since Vladimir Lenin, 1917, was already old, frail. So they were looking for a replacement. And Donald Trump looked like a very promising candidate for the replacement. Uh, the purpose of this was to meet him, to do a charm offensive, uh, to, uh, to impress him, uh, to flatter to the point that they feel he can be managed into the due direction. Uh, to hit him with active measures, sound bites, and develop relationship for next several years. Uh, so it wasn't to install him as president. The United States. That wasn't the goal. Uh, had somebody told him, no way, no. At that time, you know, had somebody told that this guy someday would be the president of the United States, people would not even laugh because right. it was it was not even funny. Right. It was not even funny. I can tell you that the Russians did not believe that he has chances to become the president of the United States until about uh, February or March 2016. Oh wow! Really. And I believe this is this is where they finally make the decision that we may have a chance with this guy, and then they introduce into the separation Dmitry Symes, another long-term right. asset of the Kremlin in this country, and they arranged this Mayflower meeting where right. Trump was put together with uh, Russian Ambassador Kislyak, and he pronounced his first foreign policy speech. LB, you want to jump in here? Oh, uh, there's, there's so much in there. I, I wanted to hopefully have Craig talk about how uh, the Robert Maxwell, his knowledge of, because uh, I know that's in your book, Craig, and I want to bring things back to the book as well and with the compromise and really look at how, um, uh, you know, and, and have Yuri chime in of how the, at that time in the 80s, as I understand it, the KGB, someone like Donald Trump, is really powerful because he can get on television. He can say whatever he was saying. He was going on talking about NATO is ridiculous. We need to do with NATO. And he would, he was almost, he could use his, his platform as an attack dog in the days before we had social media, right? He, 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 this was a personality. And 
because of his Rolodex and because of Roy Cohn and because of the people around Donald, he had access into politics and into uh, society, into banking. He had Ace Greenberg in his, you know, back back behind him. So he, it, it, it's not that they wanted a clown. It's that this guy, you get, as I understand it, you get Donald Trump and you're getting a power center um, from which to run your influence and also... I mean, did he ever turn into someone who himself was collecting compromise? <laughs> was he was he a full on? When do you become from an asset to an agent where you're actually running an operation yourself? Um, so I'd love to question. hear these gentlemen. And yeah. then how Maxwell, as a frame, is someone who also right was flying in this world of intelligence. Um, but he was a media guy, right? And media was so very, very important um, for for everyone who had interest in Robert Maxwell in terms of intelligence services that were he was working with and that were using him. Right. Well, there's so many directions you can go with this. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, one, I think it's interesting that you see a class, tiny class of people. And when I talked to Yuri, he talked about uh, Maxwell as a special unofficial contact. That's the same term he's used with Trump as well. And it meant uh, he was trusted, he was reliable, they would trade favors. There were questions about how knowledgeable he was. And a full-on agent can be tasked to do specific operations and report to his ha handler. And I don't, it, and Trump's relationship was not like that. It was more, we'll we'll, we're friends, we'll do, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. I also think Trump is really a mobster, essentially. And you, in that case, uh, those cases, and Trump was, yes. was very good at, um, uh, 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 feigning ignorance. I mean, there's a legal term called willful ignorance or uh, deliberate b blindness. And uh, you, so you, we saw early on in the early 80s a, 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 a Russian emigre named, a Soviet emigre named David Bogan and comes in with $5 million and it says, I'll buy five condos. Well, Trump doesn't ask questions. He never asks questions. To you, you don't, there's knowledge you don't want to have, and, and you certainly don't want to have it documented. And he worked that way all his life. He also worked with lawyers who would uh, essentially go operational so that whatever was happening could be said to have happened under attorney-client privilege, and it was there, uh, therefore not admissible in court. And a lot of that was going on. And in this context, Robert Maxwell, who was the father of Glenn Maxwell, uh, was a fabulous, uh, larger than life Falstaffian figure, I think, who, who predates uh, uh, Trump, of course. Uh, uh, I guess he, was, he died in 1991. Mm -hmm. But you see, all these guys had their own yachts. One was bigger than another. Uh, Maxwell was very, very close. Uh, to the uh, the KGB, he was close to MI6. He he was close to Mossad. He had all sorts, and he would go from one intelligence agency to another, trading favors always in his own interests. Um, it's also interesting I mean, that 
that, sorry, go ahead, finish it, sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say that Maxwell and Trump are similar in two ways as well, that neither of them, they seem to have endless amounts of money to spend on various business ventures. And, the, and the, you know, it seems like an endless pit ah. of, of money. I mean, both men, uh, you know, certainly Maxwell died owing billions of dollars. Um, Trump obviously owes uh, a, a fortune. Who knows who owes a fortune? The, the similarities there too, where did they get all this money? Is this money that came out of the intelligence agencies? Uh, well, well I, I think for Trump, uh, some of it came from laundering money through uh, uh, through his real estate. Uh, and, and we also, of course, around 2002, after he's um, gone bankrupt, belly up several times, six times, I think, in Atlantic City for overexpanding there, uh, the uh, Soviet emigres again come to his aid. And there's a company named Bayrock. It was located in Trump Tower. They start... Um, uh, de- uh, making partnering with Trump in ways that are ridiculously uh, generous to Trump. They develop the buildings. They don't take a penny from Trump, uh, um, and they just fr- take his name. They really franchise it. They pay exorbitant fees, and they're in the same building with him. And these are all people. A lot of them worked. Uh, way back with Sibico and Boris Bierstein, who were uh, again uh, tied to uh, Soviet intelligence. And as the Soviet Union was failing, it was a way sort of for parts of the KGD to take enormous sums of money, invest them in the real world, and sort of hibernate to arise later, hmm. uh, as they did, in this case, backing Donald Trump in 2002. Yuri, all these businessmen that we see that are you know so successful uh, with their billions of dollars and tied to Russia, did, did Russia bail them out along the way? Is Russia part of the reason they're so successful? Well, almost all of them were fronts for the KGB because mm-hmm. the KGB modus operandi it was uh, developed in about 1988. Nine when I was there, and the one that was simple. We control the national resources. I pick up a guy, no matter is he a gangster or a former dealer of black market economy, it doesn't matter. It's important thing is that he can be efficient and make more money. I give him access to national resources like oil, gas, uh, copper, whatever. He sells this and he kicks back. So this system still exists under Putin. This is the essence of the KGB state business operation. And that's exactly what's happening after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So I traced the major source of money which has been coming to Trump organization uh, since about early 2000. It was either a big Russian state-run corporation which was under t- tight control of the Russian intelligence community or Kremlin. And second, different greasy business billionaires again used as a front in other KGB-related business operations working for the KGB. So I am positive that in the crowd which surrounded Trump, related to the former Soviet Union, most people, at least 90%, were this way or the other related to KGB successes. And they were operating with money this way or the other controlled by the KGB or organized crime, which again was, was, was controlled by the KGB. 
Wow. So the Trump organization so was, was a front a huge... for for the KGB or the, or it used it's SRV it SVR, likes it likes it it doesn't matter likes it or not but the whole Trump organization was it. Uh, turned into a big money laundering machine for Russian intelligence community. This way or the other. They may pretend that they didn't know that, but this is a matter of fact. This is a matter of fact. Uh, so when uh, Donald Trump Jr. says that it was a uh, disproportional amount of Russian money in our Trump organization should be added disproportionate in money of Russian intelligence community operating in the Trump organization. It's stunning when you say that out loud and you think that this man became the president of the United States. How did this happen without everyone's knowledge? Narrative is funded by viewers like you. Support our independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. That's the big question well, now.